hi there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding, and thanks for listening. It's AD 60 in Roman Britain. You've not even finished your breakfast of bread dipped in wine when the second horn blows. It always comes too soon. But you're in enemy territory today and time is extra critical. You groan, but head to join your fellow soldiers breaking down the camp you built just last night, piece by piece, with the speed and skill of seasoned engineers. Now it's a routine as familiar as breathing. As you work, you cotton on to whispers in the ranks. Something about a recent ambush to the south. These lands are untamed, one says. You nod. For the glory of Rome. Your pride for your country has no bounds, and yet you wonder if any of your comrades ever feels the pangs of homesickness and unease that you feel when this type of news reaches you. You try and put it out of your mind. This is no place for fear. Once the camp is destroyed, not a trace remaining, you secure your shield on your back and your helmet by a strap to rest at the ready on your chest. The third and final horn blows, calling you and your comrades to move out. Just as it did yesterday, the day before, the day before that, and so on. You fall into formation and yet another long day of marching begins. There's no guarantee you'll live to hear tomorrow's first horn. But if you stick to the plan, your chances are pretty good. Out here in enemy territory, rules are essential. Out here, everyone follows orders or dies. Hey there, I'm Dr. Karen Bellinger anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome to another episode of Working Over Time, where we examine society through the lens of work, over time, and across cultures. On today's episode, we're zooming in on the life of an ancient Roman legionary with Dr. Simon Elliott, who has spent his career studying and writing about these figures who were larger than life in more ways than one. Seriously, these guys weren't just the face of Rome as terrifying war machines. They also were expected to function as trained engineers, civil law enforcers, and all-around administrators to boot. But what's perhaps most interesting? How the Romans viewed their military force and the appropriate use of casual, well, okay, sometimes a lot more than casual, violence. So... Ladies and gentlemen, gladii at the ready. Those are swords, by the way. Simon is an award-winning and best-selling historian, archaeologist, author, broadcaster, trustee of the Council for British Archaeology, ambassador for Museum of London Archaeology, and guide lecturer for Andante Travels. He has a PhD in Classics and Archaeology from the University of Kent, where he is an honorary research fellow an M.A. in Archaeology from UCL, and an M.A. in War Studies from KCL. He has three books relevant to today's subject, these being Roman Legionaries, 
Empire State, How the Roman Military Built an Empire, and the forthcoming magnum opus titled Romans at War. And I can't wait to hear what is so magnum opus about that one and how it's different from the first two, Simon. But um, just to, to let you guys know what we're going to be talking about today, it's the ancient Roman legionary and their surprisingly multifaceted role in the Roman Empire as soldiers, engineers, law enforcers, all sorts of things. Uh, Simon, thanks so much for coming on the podcast to talk to us about this today. Karen, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. So just quickly tell us, how's your latest book going to be different from the prior one? So we can really look forward to that. Speak, speaking as a six foot six former rugby player who, who, who's used to sort of uh, impact sports, it's all about size in terms of that book. <laughs> this book coming out, I, must be, I, I am literally the tallest archaeologist in the UK. And this book coming out uh, is 100,000 words, but it's coffee table size. Oh my, is that allowed? With wow. Two, with 250 color plates where we've been able to actually go out into the market and commission some of the world's best artists to recreate images of Roman legionaries and their, their, their other sort of military brothers and sisters in the Roman Empire. So that book is coming That's out. That's exciting. When, yeah, of, when's it going to be available? Uh, available October, but available for pre-order on all good um, book selling websites as I speak. Nice. Wow. Shipping alone is going to cost an arm and a leg on that baby. <laughs> well, I can't, I can't wait. And, and, and again, the, the key thing for us today is actually, um, I'm on the back. Of, I'm, I'm absolutely on point for you today, Karen, because I've just come off the back of uh, the final proofread of the last manuscript. So if I don't know. Oh, congratulations. Though this is a celebration. We're going to celebrate. It is a celebration. And if I don't know everything there is to know about Roman legionaries now, I never will. Let's say we're going to just focus on maybe a slice of this huge sprawling time period of great change in the composition of the Roman legionary and the roles that they played and, and the kit that they carried around, as you say. Um, what, could you just zero in on a narrower swath that we could kind of drop in on a day in a life and look over the shoulder of one of these guys. Let's go to the, uh, um, let's go to the defeat of Boudicca, Boadicea. So Boadicea is one of the classic figures in Roman and British history. She's the warrior queen of the Iceni, who's defeated by the um, British governor at the time, um, Suetonius Paulinus, a, a sort of a battle uh, in the Midlands in Britain in about AD 60. And through telling the story of that legionary and the campaigns there, you get every facet of the Roman legionary of the period from the way he lived his life, how he fought, what he did out, other than fighting, uh, what he ate, etc., etc. Fantastic. So we're going to be sort of midway through the first century. Yes. In the Roman Empire in Britain. Spot on. Fabulous. I love that. And now I have to say, I learned to call her Boudicca. Is that wrong? No, Boudicca's right. Actually, I grew up calling her Boudicca, but now as an academic, I get frowned upon if I call, if I call her Boudicca, or I have to call her Boudicca. <laughs> oh, you do. okay? Well, so all right, because I thought for sure that when I'm talking to the author of the magnum opus, that I would have been the wrong one. All right, well, it sounds like we can take either one. So go for it. You you be Boudicca, I'll be Boudicca, and <laughs> all will be great. Perfect. So take it us away. We've got our, our legionary. H how does this, this individual wake up in the day, 
You know, what's he worried about? What's on his plate first thing in the morning? Uh, well, both well, literally and figuratively. <laughs> well, let, let, let's let's get it. Let, let, let's get him a day or two's march away from this defining battle against uh, Boudicca. So the key thing to remember here. Uh, very briefly, Boudicca has an incendiary rebellion in, in East Anglia in Britain, which um, destroys the provincial capital in Colchester, destroys London, destroys St Albans, one of the major market towns. Boudicca is now with about 230,000 warriors and camp followers. 230,000. That's a incredible. Mi- quarter of a million. That's so, incredible. So this is, and this is, this is from the primary sources as well. So this, this, uh, this uh, is a huge force. It's probably about sort of a quarter to a third of the population of southeastern uh, uh, Britain at the time. And they are, uh, they're in the Midlands trying to force a meeting engagement with the governor, Paulinus, who is only accompanied by 10,000 legionaries who've been fighting with him in Wales. So 10,000 legionaries and auxilia who are the Roman warriors. They've been fighting with him in Wales and he has to rush back to the Midlands to fight Boudicca. So the battle that we're going to look at to look at this snapshot of the Roman legionary is odds of 10,000 on the one side to 230,000 on the other. So you're the Roman legionary from Legio 20 Valeria Victrix or Legio 14 Gemina and you're going to be waking up at about five o'clock in the morning. This battle is taking place probably late August, early September and you're waking up at five o'clock in the morning with the first blow of the cornu which is the horn uh, which the, the, the cornica and horn blower blows to wake you up and wakes the other legionaries up you have a quick breakfast the second blow of the horn goes and then your first job of the day is actually a destructive one because the roman legionary when he's marching in enemy territory at, throughout the majority of the period of um, the the, the um, existence of the roman legionary has to build a marching camp at the end of the day that is, a, that is a fort which defends him overnight. So it's basically like a normal fort, but, ba- ba- but built out of an earthen bank, a ditch, and a palisade. Uh, and then the following morning, the second blow of the horn, they have to destroy it because they, oh. don't, want, they don't want the enemy to be able to use it themselves because remember, they're in enemy territory. And yeah, remember, that makes sense. The, the legionary we're talking about, our legionary, um, is... is, is um, in enemy territory so he's going to want to defend himself so he's in this marching camp so he destroys the marching camp the third blow of the horn goes and off they go marching so the ten thousand. and how long does that take that doesn't sound like you know you you just sort of kick dirt on the on the flames and the campfires out i mean i you you talked about um, earthen and wooden construction that how much time passes between the blowing of the second and the third horn in which they're destroying their their safe place for the night Probably about uh, probably about an hour at the most, and the reason for that is wow, so quick. So they were fast. Is because every Roman legionary. So the Roman legion that we're to, legionary talking about is, is is a legionary with within the Augustan legions, and the Augustan legions are about five thousand five hundred strong, and they were amazing military units because every legionary was a trained engineer. So all the engineering that was done by the legion on the march wasn't done by 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 uh, camp followers. It was done by the legionaries. In addition to all the kit I've described at the, the top of our, 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 our chat, um, the legionary also individually carried, uh, he carried a, a, a whole raft of engineering equipment, axes, adzers, uh, saws, a leather strap, we are told, um, which is interesting. But also remember every Roman legionary also carried a stake. And you remember I said that the marching camp was a ditch and a bank and a, a palisade. Well, the stakes made the palisade. So the legion is just going to go get his own stake. They carried it with them. They carried it with them. They had a nickname. They were called Marius Mules. 
because of the the consul Marius at the begin at the end of the second century BC, who created this type of legionary. Uh, they were called Marius's mules because they basically. And, and it's worth thinking about what these guys look like. You know. Um, they, they, not small they, they, these to, must have been some brawny guys they're carrying to, a lot <laughs> to, well, well, to, to words they would have looked like sort of middleweight olympic weightlifters um square and all absolute muscle but then the legionary is on the march karen so the legionary and he's got his caliger the key key piece of kit by the way is his caliger caliger his uh, hobnail boots so so he's marching now along the roman road the, there's, we know exactly which road they were marching on it's called watling street which today is the, the, the a5 main routeway through central britain um, and they're marching at full speed, 20 kilometers maybe, if they're at, at double speed, 30 kilometers a day, to try and get this meeting engagement. So, so this particular day, let's say it's the day before the battle, uh, they're marching at full speed the whole day in full kit because they're um, uh, in enemy territory. So they're in armor. I'm, I'm talking about marching in late summer, 20 to 30 kilometers a day in full armor, helmet, your, your shield is on your back, but you're able to swing it around if you need it. Your helmet is usually off at this point. It's sitting on your chest on a strap, but just, just, just in a position where you can quickly put it on. These legionaries, by the way, are, are fighting their campaign probably 50 years after the defeat of Varus and his three legions in the Teutoburg Forest in Germany, uh, where three whole legions were annihilated by, by Arminius' Germans. So, so they knew they got to actually follow the, the, the actual prescribed daily routine in, in enemy territory. They got no choice but to have their kit on because they didn't, they got ambushed, they'd be killed. Yeah, right. I mean, this is war. And they, are, they may be engineers that have to carry their own, you know, campsite with them piece by piece in a way like Lincoln logs. But wow, that's a, that's really quite an image that you paint. All right, so they're marching along. So, so okay, so they've broken down their camp, and the third horn blows and blows. And what happens next? They're, they're, they're marching. They spent the whole day marching. So so um, they march the whole day. About five o'clock, um, sort of uh, in the afternoon, they'll get to a place where. They, they've sent pioneers in advance and the pioneers have scouted out where the best place to build a marching camp is going to be. And so the pioneers have already sort of mar marked out the, the, the layout of the camp as the legionaries arrive. And by this time also within the legions, not only is every legionary a specialist, some are super specialists and some of these super specialists are surveyors called agrimensors and the agrimensors would get to work they put their own kit down their, their military kit they get the grommer which is a, a sighting device down and they make sure the camp layout is absolutely accurate and it's always playing card shaped and it varies in size depending on how big the uh, camp's going to go, going to be but they can be very very large indeed some marching camps the romans used in scotland could take up to fifty thousand men Okay, so oh the, 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 so this this is this is a significant temporary fortification. So they get there at five o'clock. The, the the surveying's being done. They get to work building the layout, etc. They probably spend an hour, two hours, sort of building uh, the camp in a form where it's going to protect them for the night. They then put their tents up, and they then start making their bread. <laughs> So, so they this don't. This does not sound like a very relaxing career, Simon. Well, the, the thing, the, the thing to remember is though that for the Roman legionary and the Roman legion of this period, they played about two hundred twenty-five denarii a day, which is a very high, high-end middle-class income. And they know okay. that if they finish serving their twenty-five years service, 
they'll then be given a, 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 a either a pension, a very big pension, or they'll be given a farm, or they'll be given a plot of land within a colonia, which is a, a settlement for Roman veterans. So they made it just just becoming a Roman legionary means you've made it in terms of in, certainly in terms of um, uh, uh, pay and financial stability for the rest of your life. All you've got to do is, of course, survive, <laughs> which is no no easy yeah, feat. Yeah, just that little thing. <laughs> no easy feat in itself. Um, so, so in actual fact, and, and also they're highly trained and they're very highly motivated. So I deliberately dropped in the names there for you, Karen, of two distinct Roman legions, 20 Valeria Victrix, which uh, later um, became based in uh, Chester in Britain, in the northwest, and 14 Jemina, which stayed in Britain until the 80s, and then left uh, the middle of the 80s, and then left to go back to the continent. These were two of the elite fighting legions, and, and like all military units, they all have their own sense of identity, and this helps them motivate themselves. Um, so every Roman legion had a name of these legionaries and these highly motivated military units with a very strong command structure, knowing that if they survive the 20 years they're made for life, hard work isn't an issue. Yeah, it sounds like it. Well, all right. With this sprawling group of people and these, you know, epic engineering tasks that were performed just in a flash, essentially. Tell me a little bit about how the typical chain of command worked in one of these outfits. Well, it's interesting because uh, it wasn't until the later empire in the dominate phase that you tended to find that military leaders were promoted based on their military skill. What you tend to find in this phase of the empire, the principate phase, is that the senior military leaders are all senators. So in, a, in Roman society, broadly, you have the following levels. You have slaves at the bottom, then you have freed men who are freed slaves. You have free men who are men who had never been slaves. And then above that, you have the, the three aristocratic classes. You have the curial class, which are less well-off aristocrats. You have the equestrian class, who are fairly well-off aristocrats. And then skyrocketing up to the top 0.5% of society, way above everybody else, you have the senators, who are the patricians. Everybody below them are plebs. The patricians are the senators. And the senators have their own career path. And the career path is called the cursus honorum. And a senator from uh, sort of his late teens, early 20s, uh, a young man from the senatorial class will fulfill a series of roles along this cursus honorum. So an older man, having fulfilled some junior posts, might become the legate, the general of a legion. So the, the guy in charge of a legion is the legate. Then you have a junior, younger senator, who is the number two, who's there to learn on the job. The number three is probably the most senior, experienced military person. And this is the camp prefect. And that's actually very important for the snapshot of the story that we're talking about here, actually. Because where we've left our legionary at the end of the day's march, the day before he fights Boudicca, it's probably at a place near somewhere called High Cross, which is where two Roman roads cross, Watling Street and the Foss Way. And the Foss Way goes to the southwest of Britain, to Exeter, where at that time there was another Roman legion called Legio II Augusta, made famous by Vespasian conquering the southwest of Britain. And there, the senator in charge and the younger senator, the number two, at the time, and this is AD 60-61, they were back in Rome. So they weren't to be found. Oh. And when the Governor Paulinus message gets to the camp where these, um, the legion's based in the southwest of Britain, it's the camp prefect who's in charge. And he's called Narcissus. And he says, when he's requested by the governor, who, remember, is the representative in the province of the emperor. So it's effectively the emperor requesting him to join Paulinus to defeat Boudicca. 
Narcissus says no, which <gasps> is absolutely unheard of. Can you think of the, the damage this is going to do? And I'll tell you why, because Exeter is on the River X. So he thought, this camp prefect, Narcissus, he thought Boudicca was going to win. And he thought that Roman Britain was going to fall, which it would have done if she'd have won, I think. So he was maintaining a route of escape back to the continent because from the River X, he could get into the English Channel and then to France. What Boom. a coward. Ooh, that's not Roman grit. And if you, if, you jump, if you jump forward two weeks, when he gets word that, of course, poor Linus with odds of uh, 23 to 1 has won, he commits suicide. So <laughs> I think he probably was backed into a corner there. I mean, was there any other way for him at that point? Uh, uh, Absolutely. And, and, but then, crucial, now this is the most important thing, actually, aside from my, 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 my anecdote there, the most important thing here within the command structure of the legions is the level below the number three, because the level below you have the centurions. So the Roman legions of this period comprise centuries, and the centuries are controlled by a centurion who's like a combination of a, a non-commissioned officer or a junior commissioned officer. And these are absolutely seasoned battle-hardened warriors. These these are as absolutely hard as nails. If you think of any gunny in any um, sort of movie about uh, the US military, this is the guy that you're thinking about, the battle-hardened sort of seasoned warrior, been there, seen it, done it. The centurion's the guy who leads literally from the front. So he fights from the front rank. So the commander in, commanders in this period don't fight from the rear as modern commanders do. They fight from the front oh. rank to, 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 um, to, to literally lead from the front. And remember the Roman way of fighting is a very sophisticated one as well because they don't all tend to fight in one main battle line. They tend to fight in three. And what you find is, and, and this always flummoxes their opponents. So when the front, front battle line, probably about five, six men deep, has tired from the initial point of contact, a whistle or the cornu blows, and they then swap out for the line, the fresh line behind them, who fight the still. So, tired so they come enemy. from behind, and the, and the front lines fall back. Absolutely. So there you go. There's your command structure of a Roman legion. <laughs> wow. And what is the origin of the word legion and legionary? Legion and legionary basically is a name for a military formation dating all the way back to the early republic. It just so happens, though, the first time it's used is after a defeat. Now, this is probably a good point, um, Karen, and I, I, I promise I'll come back to Boudicca to use it to illustrate what happens in that battle to show their own. Oh, the religion. suspense is excellent. Keep going. We <laughs> love suspense. It keeps people listening. But the Romans didn't always win. Okay, but what they were very good at, Rome, the Romans overall throughout the entirety of the Republic and the Empire were two things, I think anyway. One was they had true grit, as we would style it now. They never gave up. They always came back from adversity and defeat. They had a very unique way of looking at success in military conflict in that they only judged it a success if they'd won on their own terms, which is why they wrong-footed Hannibal and the Carthaginians. They wrong-footed the Hellenistic kingdoms time and again because they thought that the romans would just sue for peace i mean remember hannibal brought rome to its knees in the second punic war but the romans refused to give up and they came back and eventually hannibal lost and carthage was destroyed so the romans never gave up they only won on their own terms but secondly in so doing they learned from their defeat now the roman term legion only comes into being after a massive defeat this is when you get the uh, Roman military formations based on the Greek hoplites I described at the top of the program, fighting the Gauls at the, uh, around 390 BC. 
and they are the Romans are massively defeated by the Gauls and they're shocked and Rome gets sacked. And the learning experience there is to learn that probably one of the reasons why the Romans had lost in this conflict against the Gauls was that the Gauls were taller than the Romans. And therefore, with the hoplite panoply, uh, with the, the, the round hoplon aspis shield and the Greek armour, that was probably inadequate because the taller Gauls could reach over the oh, shield gosh. wall and yeah. smack them on the top of the head, literally. So the Romans learned so that quickly from this. makes it hard to win, yeah. So they completely changed the nature of their military formations. And from that time, you start talking about Roman legions with legionaries, which leads all the way through to the legionary of the Boudican Revolt. It's the Romans losing here losing there, learning, losing here, learning, and so on. So Simon, this, um, this anecdote of the taller Gauls reaching over the round hoplite style shields and slaughtering the Roman soldiers, is that one of the major impetuses for uh, switching to the scutum, the square shield you talked about? Absolutely, Karen. And if we go all the way through to, again, AD 6061, we're about to defeat Boudicca tomorrow, because we're the night before defeating Boudicca. Uh, I told you I wouldn't forget. The, um, we can look at this Roman legionary I described at the top of the program. Okay, so this legionary, all his kit isn't Roman. It's all nicked from people who the Romans had lost to over time. So here's the, here, here we go. Let's go, from, let's go from top to toe, shall we? So he's wearing oh. this fantastic helmet, which provides incredible protection. It's got cheek guards. It's got a, a really broad neck guard at the back. So even somebody trying to chop him from the back uh, would get nowhere. Uh, this is called an imperial, are you ready? Gallic helmet. So that's nicked from the Gauls. Uh, the loricus segmentals the tall Gauls, the loricus segmentata the, the the banded iron armor we think this is actually uh based on earlier leather gladiator armor and gladiators uh we think originated with the etruscans to the north of of uh, to, to the north of the um of the, the latin kingdoms of rome so that's a nicked idea as well the sword the gladius his proper name is the gladius hispaniensis the clues again in the name it's spanish uh, by the way, it's worth reflecting the Gladius Hispaniensis uh, is also a terror weapon. It's a psychological weapon. Because if you, if you look at it closely, it has no runnels in it. And a runnel is a, a, a channel, which usually swords have two either side, uh, which allows air into a wound or blood out of a wound so you can withdraw the sword quickly. The Romans deliberately didn't put runnels in their gladii because they knew that when the sword went in to get the sword out, the legionary would have to give it a massive twist which caused a gaping oh. wound which terrified their opponents um so this is a very specific thing it's deliberate um it's and quite brutal sounding it's brutal yeah absolutely so uh, and again this is very relevant to the defeat of Boudicca, the two javelins the famous pillar pillar two pillars the lead weighted the lighter one and the heavier one you have a long iron shank with a sharp point and then at the base of the iron shank you have a lead weight and then you have the wooden shaft the idea is that when the um when the weapon hits the opponent or the opponent's shield that the iron shank will bend so even if it doesn't kill the opponent or wound him the bent javelin as it were, will stop the shield being used or incapacitate the injured person. So again, this is very specific. And the pilums are almost certainly Etruscan. Okay, they're not Roman either. Uh, and then the shield, so the scutum, the famous scutum shield, this body shield, um, this is probably Samnite, which are Rome's opponents in central Italy when they're um, trying to conquer Italy as the Republic. So all the kit is nicked. The, the other type of armour worn by the Romans at this period is called the, the, the Lorica Hamata. The Lorica Hamata is chainmail, 
that's Gallic. So every piece of kit this legionary who's about to defeat Boudicca against odds of 23 to 1 is nicked uh, from opponents who defeated the Romans, but the Romans learned and came back the better for it. Well, so they weren't just a kind of a formidable killing machine, but they're a very smart one, a, a learning organization well before its time. And why not, right? If you're not going to learn from your mistakes. If you want, if you want an analogy from science fiction about the way that the Romans osmosed uh, the ideas and technology of others, you could look no further than the Borg in Star Trek. There's an analogy for you. There were biological automata who actually effectively did exactly as I've described. They stole the ideas and technology of, 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 of other species in the Star Trek, um, Star Trek universe. So, so the, the Romans basically, and also they had a very strong sense of other, the Romans did as well. They, they were brought up, especially the nobility, to the, so the, the leadership within the legions down to centurion level to think that they were better than their opponents. They, they knew, for example, that the Greek civilizations the hellenistic civilizations in the east had finer cultures in their own ways later at this phase of empire the romans were beginning to adopt it um, but the romans still thought they were better and no one could tell them otherwise i mean this roman legion it sounds actually like a true terror machine you know it's sort of like your worst nightmare not only does it uh have all of these incredible strengths and skills to camp and decamp and fight you in battle very efficiently but they're just going to sort of hoover up whatever better ideas and better kit that you have so that the next time they meet you your tricks are out of the bag simon i want to go back to what's happening on the eve of the battle with Boudicca. should we should we give our legionary a name karen yeah let's call him we'll call him gromio so we have gromio the legionary so the Gromio the legionary wakes up uh, with the first blow of the horn, as we know, but this time he's not going to destroy his marching camp because the marching camp's going to take part in the battle because Paulinus, the governor, remember a governor of a, a Roman province, is the, is the emperor's representative, particularly the military leader and the legal leader. So he's a, he's a, he's a very seasoned warrior in his own right. And Paulinus has chosen this battle site carefully because he'd already advanced through here into Wales. So he's going back to a place he knew. And he almost certainly chose this battle site specifically because the primary sources tell us that it's like a horseshoe shape with the open end opening up onto Watling Street along which Boudicca's coming. And with its flanks, the, the, where the horseshoes are on the flanks, they're protected by a, a, a river on either side and then forests and then there's also a forest across the back. So if Paulinus very deploys, clever, very mm. clever. And if Paulinus deploys across the head of the horseshoe, uh, therefore his flanks are completely protected. It's an amazing choice. So the guy's on his A game, and he, as it proves in the whole battle, he yeah. knows. And so and he's keeping his camp so that they can retreat into it if needed. Is That's is it. that the that idea? Karen, it's even better. So Paulinus is a very belt and braces kind of guy. So in actual fact, he put his two camp, he built two, he put the two camps either end of the head of the horseshoe. So they're just butting against the woodland oh. and the rivers. So his battle line is anchored on two marching camps, which take part in the battle. And then he deploys his legionaries and his auxiliaries across the head. Okay. So you can imagine the scene. Um, they've had the breakfast. They don't destroy the marching camps. This is also an area where the Romans have got a lot of logistics bases helping them in their Welsh campaign. So it's, it's full of artillery. Okay. So each Roman legion has about 50 light 
bolt shooters so like light big catapult like light big crossbows and then it has about 10 ballistas which are big stone throwers or big bolt throwers well he's actually got even more on show here because he's got about a legion and a half and then he's got these logistic spaces where he can get the kit from those as well so the legionary uh probably about sort of 10 in the morning gets given his a lot of space with this unit and our legionary gromio is now standing there okay he's there and he's in full kit, you know, he's, he's in full kit. He's probably not slept in his armour, but it's been next to him. But now he's in full kit. And you can imagine Paul Linus marching up and down the line and saying a few words here, a few words there. I remember when you fought there, you fought very well. I, you're one of my best men. Don't let me down today. And they've got a plan. Okay? So they know that Boudicca can't march past the, the entrance to the horseshoe because if she did with the 230,000 men, Paulinus would be to her rear and cut her off from the Iceni homelands. So they know that she's got to actually fight them there and then. So Boudicca arrives and she comes into the horseshoe, the, the, the opening of the horseshoe, and she loses control because these, these aren't professional warriors like the Romans. Mostly they're part-time warriors. They think they're going to have a field day because they bring the families with them who sit on a hillside at the back to watch the massacre. So it's a oh. bit, you imagine like the first bull run, you know, all the families yeah. are there, it's a day, day out and they've got picnics and everything. Um, but actually they do see a massacre, but it's not the Roman massacre because... Paulinus has put markers in the ground for the legionaries. Remember, it's even the legionaries who are manning the bolt shooters and the, the stone throwers. They've put range markers in the ground. So as the mass of, Roman, of Britain's 230,000 start charging headlong, exactly like Gladiator, charging headlong to, to, towards the Romans, first, first, the big stone throwers start going, poof, poof, poof. and so the ranks in the front of the Britons, their chariots start getting hit. The chariots sort of start getting splintered. And then as they get closer, the lighter Scorpio start firing their bolts and they go into the front ranks. And then as they get closer, the bowmen start firing at them. And then as they get closer, the slingers start firing at them. A lot of the Roman auxiliaries were slingers. Remember a slingshot, a lead slingshot is like a low velocity uh, pistol bullet. Okay. And doesn't need to penetrate you to kill you. It can take you out just by concussing you or breaking an arm. And as they get closer, the legionaries now come into play. So Gromio's ready. So he's got his two javelins in his hand and he can see the whites of the opponent's eyes as they start charging up the hill slope towards the head of the, of the, of the horseshoe. And the arm goes back and in the arm, 6,000 legionaries, there's a light pillar. And at the right moment, the order goes and they get thrown in a massive volley. And it's a para, para, parabolabic volley, which goes down towards the heads of the Britons, many of whom aren't wearing helmets and very few wearing armor. And again, the front ranks get disrupted. And now, just before the point of impact, so about 10 yards away, the legionary is there, Gromio and his comrades and his centurion, making sure he's steady. The heavy pillars in his hand. This is an armor-piercing pillar with a big lead weight in it. And that gets thrown straight flat in a flat arc and that goes straight into the front ranks who tumble to a halt and it doesn't matter if you've got 230,000 people in uh, behind you that makes it worse because it means they've got nowhere to go and at this oh, point right at this point Paul Linus gives the word to Gromio and the legionaries and he says right draw gladii so the gladius is drawn 
So it's about the length of his forearm and it's got this stabbing point. It's not a slashing sword, it's a stabbing sword and it's using a very specific fencing technique which I'll describe. And then the Roman legionary Gromio, the Roman legionary's training comes into play in a military context because Paulinus orders all the front ranks to form into wedges. They're called coenus, swinehead formations. So the, the centurion steps forward and the legionaries either side form into a wedge behind him. And you had this buzzsaw formation all the way down the Roman line. And then the whistle blows or the cornu blows and they get told to step and they step and they step and they step and they step and the wedge hits the Britons and the Britons try and bring the swords down onto the Romans but it's to no avail because the sword goes down onto the shield the Roman legionary Gromio lifts his shield he's got his gladius in his hand the the, the midriff of the British opponents exposed and the sword goes in and we know what's going to happen next a massive twist a terrible wound the sword is withdrawn the Britain falls and they do it again and they step and they step and they step they push the Britons all the way down the bottom of the slope Gromio and his comrades remember the Romans here may have lost only 400 men maximum and the Britons lost nearly a hundred thousand that's because the families were what? sitting back the families that is were, stunning the wow. families were sitting at the back so there's nowhere for the Britons to run the Romans always carry out severe reprimands, butchery against uh, rebelling, um, um, rebelling um, populations. And that's what happens here. It's an absolute massacre. And Boudicca either dies by being poisoned, by poisoning herself nearby or from her wounds. The rebellion is over. And where they came from in East Anglia is depopulated to such an extent that it becomes one of the least, uh, least economically viable parts, at least for the first part of the Roman Empire. And that's Gromio and his comrades and how they fought a battle. The suspense was fantastic as you were telling that story, Simon. And I've got to wonder how typical that battle you just described between Boudicca and our, our Gromio might have been. It's fairly typical. That's a very extreme example because of these ridiculous odds uh, and Paul Linus having to be on his A game. But one lovely thing I like to think about Gromio there though, at the end of this battle is have a guess, Karen, what Gromio did at the end of the battle. Uh, did he pillage and loot the fallen Britons? He built a marching camp. <laughs> oh my gosh. But couldn't they go back to the one that they left from the night before? No, because they, <laughs> no, they were pursuing. By this time, they were, pursu they were pursuing. I'll tell you, oh. I'll give you an interesting anecdote about how efficient this Roman military machine is. When you talk about ancient warfare and ancient battles, most, in fact, any battle in the pre-modern era, probably even in the modern era, most casualties occur when one when army breaks. It's done in the pursuit. The Roman cavalry were taught when they were pursuing a defeated opponent not to actually hang around and just kill them as they caught them. They were taught to reach down with their swords or spears and hamstring them and then carry on and do the next guy and then the next guy and then the next oh, guy. So just to disable them but not kill them. And then it's the, it's the following foot troops who then do the killing. So it's, it's the, the whole thing has a military efficiency to it, which is almost Factory terrifying. Factory killing. Yeah. Wow, that is kind of, it's, yeah. It does, actually, Karen, it's very interesting. It does remind us one thing to bear in mind about the difference between ourselves and peoples of the past. For whatever, whatever, whatever period, peoples of the past, I always say in my talks, on TV or whatever, they're like us, and they're, they're always they're, they are like us, but they're different in many ways as well. And one of the differences in the Roman world, in fact, in 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 the ancient world, is this attitude to casual violence, because this would not be something which would be shocking to the people living at the time. The Britons knew if they'd lost, this is what was going to come their way. They just thought with those odds in their favour that they were going to win. So so this was expected. 
And so it, it wasn't as if these, these families who were actually hanging out picnicking until things went badly would have been actually shocked. I mean, obviously they would have been upset, but it was what they would have expected of the Roman army. I think they would have become part of the story if you follow my meaning. Yeah, sounds like it. Wow. So it sounds like this Roman legionary was was actually a pretty coveted gig for all that it was really hard work and uh, brutal. But how did one become a Roman legionary if you weren't at the top of the ranks to start? Well, going back to my earlier point, you weren't a professional legionary until the time of Marius at the end of the second century. So the first legionaries of the earlier mid-Republic, they would have been uh, citizen soldiers. So they would have had their kit at home. In fact, in actual fact, uh, it was a point of honour as a Roman citizen to become a Roman legionary and campaign for a couple of months a year if you were required to do so, because it meant you could afford the armour to do it because you had to pay for your own kit. So that wasn't a 25-year commitment, though. Was that just sort of like being in the Army Reserves today? No, no, it's even, it's even less, though. It's a couple of months. A couple of yeah. months a year. A couple of months a year. It's very unusual for, for, for uh, a Roman army to campaign for more than six or seven months. And that's only when they're doing campaigns of conquest abroad, when there's lots of loot to be had. So they've got the day jobs to go back to. They've got the farms to, to run, etc. cetera. Um, it's only the time, at the time of Marius that uh, you, you start having Roman legionaries as professionals. And again, of course, Karen, you will be not surprised to hear that that's in the context of a massive defeat as well. Because in a, a, around, sort of around AD, uh, so 110 BC, um, the Romans fought a, a Germanic tribe who were invading Gaul called the Cimbrii in the Cimbrian Wars. And the Cimbrii annihilated legion after legion after legion. Very, very fierce Germanic warriors with a huge, ferocious charge. Um, and the Romans were defeated time and again. And it's only Marius realising he got to change things again, which allowed the Romans to win. And he's the guy who created the professional legionary. He created the professional legionary by paying him. The key thing there is the poor could then become legionaries. You didn't need to buy your own kit. Mm. Okay? Mm-hmm, so he opened mm-hmm. up the entirety of Roman society to uh, joining the military. And this meant that it's very important because this goes all the way through to Caesar and Augustus. This is the beginning of the end, a century earlier than the end of the Roman Republic. And it begins with the Roman legionary. By making these legionaries professionals, the, the lower classes in society, they were totally reliant on their pay to their Roman warlord legionary paymasters. So therefore, you have these legions who are totally loyal to their leaders. Think of the legions following Caesar, Pompey, Mark Antony, uh, Octavian, later Augustus. They're completely loyal because they're being paid by the, guy, by, by the leader. So mm-hmm. therefore, it almost turns Roman society on its head. Uh, and it enables these political leaders to bring together... Um, uh, almost like building Lego blocks together, multiple legions to do their own campaigning. They literally do whatever they want to. And it's eventually a key factor in the, the, the Roman Empire coming down. But for the legionary, it's important because his, his nature is completely changed now. He's now a professional soldier. By the time of Caesar, who's a very professional leader, he sets the bar uh, for the, this professional warrior to, ter- to serve six years. And he's the guy who first pays them 225 denari- denarii as their salary. And this goes all the way through to Augustus, and it's Augustus before the end of the first century BC who dramatically changes uh, the the terms of service for the legionary because he realises that with the new Roman Empire, he's got to keep expanding. So he's got to make sure that the military establishment is maintained at the same level. So he switches from six to 20 years and then then 25 years. 
Um, and also, you would assume that the Roman legions, the Roman le le that they they uh, uh, want as young uh, men as possible. But actually, they tried to get men who were eighteen or over because they wanted people who were fully grown. Because again, I go back to my point about them being Marius as mules. There's no point in having a sort of a scrawny 16-year-old trying to carry all that weight on his back for, for a 20 or 30-kilometer march. These guys have got right. to be fit from the word go. Well, but, you know, but I have to wonder, what is your typical lifespan in this time? I mean, how many, how many of these career legionaries in this time period made it through their 25-year period to qualify for their retirement benefits? Overall, in this period of the Roman Empire, you'll, the average lifespan is about 35 for a man, and it's about 30 for a woman. And that's, that's taken into account all levels of, of society, but it's also taken into account, in the woman's case, high levels of, of, of um, mortality in childbirth, and yeah, also right. high, levels of of infant, high, high levels of infant mortality overall across the entirety of Roman society. The Roman legionary, unless he gets killed or wounded in battle, he's going to be well-maintained well as a sort of a, a, a healthy physical unit by the state because he's got a specific job to do, which is to keep the state safe and create new provinces so there can be new loot going into the emperor's imperial, uh, imperial fiscus treasury. So the legionary is actually pretty, pretty healthy and provided he doesn't get struck down by plague. And there are examples of Roman armies actually being defeated because they have had plague events. Um, the, the, the legionary can probably expect to, provided he doesn't get killed in battle, to live till his sort of mid fifties, early sixties. So how were these legionaries actually paid? Was it cash in hand or, you know, how'd that work? They got paid cash every year. And so it's, it's a fabulous question because it actually highlights another of these major differences between the world then and the world now. So the legionaries paid his middle class, middle class salary often in one lump sum a year. So what does he do with it? Well, here's the thing. There's no bank he can put it in, is there? There's no, no sort of banks where we have them now. Well, and he's walking around all the time. Does he have a pocket? I mean, yeah, what happens? <laughs> well, well one, of the, one of the key positions within the Roman legion is called the Aquilifer. The Aquilifer is the main standard bearer. So in a Roman legion, you have a number of standards. You have a vexilla, which is like a flag, which uh, each cohort of legionaries has a flag, this vexilla. You have a signifer, which is a, an image on the end of a pole of the sitting emperor. And I can imagine in years of rapid turnover, like the year of the four emperors and the year of the five emperors, it being quite difficult to have the right head of the emperor on the end of the pole. And then you, <laughs> you have the, you have the, um, the, the Aquilifer. Now, the Aquilifer is important because he carries the most important standard in the legion. It's called the Aquila, which, as you will guess, is the eagle. It's the golden eagle standard, which only leaves the legionary fort or camp when the, the whole legion's on the march. And if a legion loses its eagle, it's never it's, it's disbanded and never reformed. So it's a really big deal. Okay? Really? But just, just if a symbol, if this symbol of its unity and, and power and might and all of this is lost this is imperial might i'll give you i'll come back wow. to the salary i'll give you i'll give you an anecdote again i've got a sack full of them today for you karen when caesar first invaded britain in 55 bc his ships arrived on the coast east coast of kent i believe and we're told by the primary sources that um the legionaries were scared of landing because they crossed this terrifying ocean to a land of which they knew nothing it's like a game of thrones kind of gig yeah or yeah. um or, to or tolkien and they wouldn't they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't disembark 
into Britain until the standard bearer, the equilifer of the 10th Legion, 10 Equestris, our old friend, leapt into the water and said, I'm here to support my general and my republic. Are you going to do the same or will you bring shame on the Legion? And they followed him and then Caesar landed in Britain. So this is a big gig. But you wouldn't know from that that the equilifer had a second job. He was the banker. It was his job to look after the money of the legionaries as well and when you're within the legionary fortress so this is the permanent base the stone built base where the legion overwinters etc um within the principia which is the commander's house in the middle of the fortress there's a room with a with a with a with a cellar and the cellar is where the strong box goes where the legionaries pay goes so in actual fact the legionaries will keep some on them but give the rest of the equilibrium to look after in the strong box in the hole in the ground and so the equilibrium would have like piles of coins that he he guarded he's the guy he's the guy who had the key to the strong box so he's the most he's the most he's the most trusted man in the entire legion. You can imagine the temptations are hot footed in the middle of the night. <laughs> well, right. So what I was just going to ask you is: was this a very strategic decision to make the person who was in charge of the the, the key symbol of this group of fighting soldiers also the one in charge of the money, so that Absolutely. nobody would dare to mess with them? That's the brilliant. Great, the, the great thing here, Karen, is you're pulling through a, a common thread through nearly all of the narrative we've discussed. It's all about symbolism, isn't it? Yeah. It's all about it's all it's all about statement and symbolism. You know, when you go to the Forum Romanum in Rome, you're not just sitting there in the Forum Romanum. You've got the Forum of Caesar, the Forum of Augustus, the Forum of Trajan next to you. You've got the Capitoline Hill above you, where you'd have had the big temples in the Roman period. You've got the Palatine Hill above you, where the Imperial Palace was. You've got the giant Colosseum behind you. It's all about monumentalism, and it's all about symbols of power. And that's a very, very Roman thing, and that's writ large to nearly all of these experiences. It's worth remembering as well, though, in terms of this salary, um, Karen, that just as with their forebears, even in this period, the Roman legionary still had to buy his own kit. So some money was taken out of his salary to buy his kit. And he also had to buy his own food. So some of the money was taken out of his salary to buy the food as well, even before he got the money. So his room and board was essentially deducted, his, his equipment fees. Um, and this talk about symbolism uh, makes me wonder... What was the public's view of these roving armies? They were terrified of them. The, um, the Romans, very specifically, didn't allow armed soldiers into their urban settlements. So you literally couldn't go into Rome as a Roman legionary with your art kit on. The only people at this period who were allowed to be armed were the Praetorian Guard of the Emperor. Uh, uh -huh. It's very unusual in the Roman Empire to find a military uh, building of any kind like a fort within an urban settlement i mean london is an unusual example and that actually is in the context of a rebellion um where we have at least two forts being built in london but more often than not there's very few examples of roman forts being built anywhere near uh, urban settlements and in actual fact in this phase of the empire it's very unusual for, for, to find roman units actually within the empire all the legions were based on in legionary forts which were on the frontiers of the empire so the legions were all based away from the center of the empire it's very deliberate because one that's where the action was but two very often you get usurpers trying to win the throne from a sitting emperor so sitting emperors tended to want to keep the military away from them yeah of course right 
Simon, what do you think we ought to be able to expect of our military and police in the modern era? There's a real difference here between the Roman world and the modern world, because the, the, in the Roman world, the, the military was very, very, very separate from society. And the military was involved in policing. So even when you get policing units like the urban cohorts, who, like, who, who are like gendarmes, or like the, 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 the vigils, who are the, the, the night watchmen and the firemen, um, they're still more other than society than our police forces are today. Today, our police forces, and I'm speaking as the son of a policeman in the UK in actual fact, our police forces in the UK are far more part of modern society, which is why we probably find it so shocking today when, event, when, a, when an event occurs, when we perceive, for whatever reason, uh, a law and order organisation anywhere in the world doing something which, which is out of line with how we would expect a normal member of society to behave. Simon, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today and explain how incredibly manifold the role of the Roman legionary was in ancient Roman society and the world of that time. Karen, it's my absolute pleasure. I've loved talking to you and to you, to, to you guys. It's been an absolute pleasure. I just hope you haven't been able to hear my golden doodle Hector snoring in the background. Oh, no, not a bit. And it would add nice background noise if so. Who doesn't like a snoring dog? <laughs> Thank you. Embodying the might of Rome was, by definition, a highly pressured military gig. I mean, what's an empire without its military, right? But as Simon shared today, the work of a Roman legionary was all that and more. The expectations for a legionary were multifaceted and complex amalgamating the core values of ancient Roman society. Strength, valor, duty, skill, and, of course, conquest. But despite the major differences in attitudes about war and violence, many things, as always, have remained much the same through the ages when it comes to soldierly work. Like today's military women and men, the Roman legionary was more than a battlefield fixture. He was a human being, highly motivated by a formidable sense of personal identity and fellowship, not to mention the prospect of a lifelong state-funded pension in a time when such benefits didn't exist elsewhere. It just goes to show that even though the training, weaponry, and battle tactics have changed, the human hearts beating under the armor yearn for many of the same things, financial stability, camaraderie, and pride both for country and for self. Thanks for listening. Hey there. You can follow today's guest on Twitter at SimonElliott20 and check out his website, SimonElliott.net, for all of his latest works. We also have a show update to share. After September 4th, we're going to be taking a brief hiatus, but don't worry, we'll be back with loads of new episodes for season two on October 2nd. Spies, sailors, tiger hunters, blacksmiths, gladiators, ministers, and alchemists are just some of the topics we'll be exploring next. As always, please share your thoughts and questions with us at Working OT Series on Twitter. And if you like what you've heard so far, please leave us a review and share the show with the history lovers in your life. Thanks so much for listening. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan LaLiberty, 
and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on Instagram at Working Overtime Series. Thanks for listening, and remember to like and subscribe.